My scripture reading this afternoon is from Psalm 40. Psalm 40, a psalm of David, as have been most of the psalms that we've looked at in this series on the Lord's Prayer and the Psalms. Psalm 40, superscription given to us by the Holy Spirit, says that it is to the chief musician, a psalm of David. He writes, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth, praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. Blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord my God, are your wondrous works which you have done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, my ears you have opened, burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips. O Lord, you yourself know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. For innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me. So that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who seek to destroy my life. Let them be driven backward and brought to dishonor who wish me evil. Let them be confounded because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. And occasionally, uh, the New Testament will give us inspired commentary on the Old. That is the case in Hebrews chapter 10, which uh, quotes extensively from that same psalm. And so we'll read uh, Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 10. Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 10. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. 
But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Then we will uh, read those in connection with Lord's Day 51. Lord's Day 51 of the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, question 126, at the bottom of page 895 in the back of your hymnals. We'll read uh, Lord's Day 51 responsively. Question 126 says, What does the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer mean? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors means, because of Christ's blood, do not impute to us, poor sinners that we are, any of the transgressions we do or the evil that constantly clings to us. Forgive us just as we are fully determined as evidence of your grace in us wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbors. Beloved, as we have been uh, working our way through each petition of the Lord's Prayer, we've been uh, considering each one through the lens of a psalm. And when it comes to the fifth petition, Forgive us our debts. There's a number of of penitential psalms that we could use. That simply means psalms of confession. Uh, Penitential psalms like Psalm 51 or Psalm 130, Psalm 32. Remember those songs that we often sing on Sunday mornings after hearing the law? Uh, And then there's a number of other psalms with uh, penitential sections like uh, Psalm 25 or, or this psalm before us, Psalm 40. Where in each of them we see an acknowledgement of sin and desire for God to forgive. These psalms, like Psalm 25 or Psalm 40 or the the psalms that are penitential in in entirety, uh, teach us to confess our sins before God and plead for His mercy. Uh, They teach us, through the language of the Old Testament, to uh, plead the merits of Christ's blood. And so when Christ teaches us in the Lord's Prayer to pray, forgive us our debts, he's not introducing some new type of prayer, but but Christ is is picking up on one of the most common types of prayer in the Old Testament, a prayer of confession. So I want to focus in the first part of this sermon on verses 11 and 12 of this psalm, Psalm 40, as an example of of this kind of prayer, the kind of prayer that we see in all of the penitential psalms, the kind of prayer that we see in Ezra 9 or Daniel 9. 
And as we look at this a little sample of a prayer of confession, I want you to notice four things that we see in it. Uh, first of all, we see in, in this little section in verses 11 and 12, uh, an appeal to God's gracious character. We see the same sort of thing in Psalms like Psalm 51, uh, where at the very beginning of that psalm, after David's sin with Bathsheba, he speaks of God's uh, loving kindness and of the multitude of God's tender mercies. We see it in Psalm 143, another uh, one of those penitential psalms where the psalmist speaks of God's faithfulness and his righteousness, his loving kindness and his mercy. Psalms of confession are uh, directed toward the one who is merciful and gracious, toward the one of whom Exodus 34 speaks, who is a slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And it's almost as if the psalmist, as, as he is uh, bringing sins before God, is reminding himself and reminding the people as they take this psalm on their lips of just who it is to whom they pray, a God who is gracious and merciful. That's what we see in, in verses 11 and 12, or verse 11 especially, of Psalm 40, where it speaks of God's tender mercies, or you could translate that, his heartfelt compassion. It speaks in the next part of the verse of, of his loving kindness. Um, that's that word that, that comes up often in the Old Testament, that Hebrew word hesed, his covenant love, where he, he binds himself to his people by covenant, and though we deserve from him nothing, he gives to us everything. And so David is reminding God not only of the mercy and heartfelt compassion that is essential to his character, but of the covenantal relation that he has to his people, that he has bound himself to them as their covenant God. And he goes on then in verse 12 to speak of God's truth, his his truth and his faithfulness to those words that he has spoken. And appealing in, in all of these different ways to who God is, he then places himself in a position of dependence on him. He's saying at the end of verse 11, let your, your, your loving kindness and your truth and your mercy preserve me. He's saying these are the only things that can preserve me. Let your loving kindness, your heartfelt compassion, your covenant love, your truth and faithfulness to the gracious promises that you've spoken to your people, let those things preserve me. This is what the Psalms of Confession teach us to do. They teach us to place ourselves in in a position of dependence on God in his righteous character. These are the same sort of of thing in, in Psalms like Psalm 130, where it begins, this is a prayer of confession, out of the depths I cry to you, O God, if, if you should mark iniquities, none of us could stand before you. And then there is that great word, but. But I wait on you, and in your word do I hope I wait more than watchmen wait for the morning. For with you there is mercy and there is abundant redemption. These psalms teach us to acknowledge our dependence on God in his gracious character. They first of all appeal to his gracious attributes, and then they teach us to cast ourselves upon them for all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. We cannot trust in our own works and our own merits. 
For even the good that we do is tainted by our sin, by our our sinful motives, whereby we confuse God's kingdom and our own. We do not put our trust in priests to absolve us of our sins. We put our trust in God, in his gracious character. Preserve me, O God. And then these psalms of confession, after uh, naming God in his his gracious attributes, after uh, casting oneself upon them, then they go on to speak specifically of, of why it is that we are in such a state of dependence on God's righteous character. What is it that, that occasions these kinds of psalms? And it's our human sinfulness. The psalmist acknowledges sin and, and says, the reason why I'm praying to you, the reason why I am so dependent on your grace and your mercy is because of our sin. And so verse 12, the psalmist speaks um, in a number of different words of, of human sin. He speaks of evils and iniquities which have overtaken him. You know, see, he, he doesn't downplay sin. He does not call these sins mere mistakes or blunders, but he calls them what they are, and he accurately identifies their extent. They're not just little tiny sins, but they have surrounded him. They have overtaken him so that he cannot look up. He says they are more than the hairs of his head. And so the psalmist appeals to God's gracious attributes. The psalmist places himself in a position of dependence on God and his gracious attributes, acknowledges the extent of the sin he confesses, not downplaying it, and then finally he asks God to graciously pour out his mercy nonetheless. It's as if he's saying, I am unworthy, my sins are more than the hairs of my head, but Lord, be merciful, I cast myself on you, be who you have promised to be, be who you are, gracious and long-suffering, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So we see in verses 11 and 12 of this psalm, much as we do in other psalms like Psalm 25 or Psalm 51, a prayer for God's forgiveness. These are some of the fundamental elements of a prayer of confession in line with what we're taught to pray in the fifth petition. And yet as you look at Lord's Day 51, you see that there's another uh, very essential element to this prayer of confession, another very important element that we must not leave out as we are asking God for forgiveness, and that's uh, the basis of our prayer for God's forgiveness. Our catechism tells us is because of Christ's blood. And so we do not come to God and just say, uh, be, be gracious because maybe like the world around us likes to say, you are a God of love and not a God of judgment or of justice. But we come to God pleading the merits of Christ's blood. Affirming that he is not only a God of grace and love and mercy, but also a God of justice as he has shown forth in the cross of Christ. And so the psalmist too recognizes that that something has to happen in order for God not to impute to us poor sinners that we are any of the transgressions we do or the evil that constantly clings to us. So look with me at verses 5 through 10 of Psalm 40, really the, the heart 
of this psalm where the psalmist confesses that sacrifice and offering are not ultimately what God desires, but these things were merely provisional. But we're not ultimately able to take away sins. He says, burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. In the next verse, then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O God, and your law is within my heart. And of course, we read from Hebrews 10, where the inspired author of Hebrews ascribes those words in verses 6 through 8 to Jesus. In much the same way that he ascribes the words of Psalm 22 to Christ in Hebrews chapter 2. For according to the author of Hebrews, Christ is the singer of the Psalms. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, and then the author of Hebrews quotes the words of Psalm 40. Christ said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. He's taking the words of that psalm and placing it on the lips of Jesus. And maybe you noticed as we read those two different passages, a slightly different way of rendering Psalm 40, verse 6. In the original, it says, my ears you have opened, or literally, my ears you have dug for me. But then Hebrews 10, uh, quoting from the Septuagint, says, a body you have prepared for me. The Septuagint is simply the the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so the the translators of the Old Testament into Greek understood the the part, his ear, to refer to the whole. That God does not just dig an ear for the one he creates, but he prepares a body. So that's what the uh, the, the, uh, translators of the Old Testament into Greek, the the translators of the Septuagint are saying that when Psalm 40 verse 6 says, an ear you have dug for me, that's that's just a way of of speaking and saying a whole body you have prepared for me. The ear is a part referring to the whole. And the Holy Spirit in Hebrews 10 agrees with that interpretive paraphrase and says, when when the psalmist said, an ear you have dug for me, that was referring to God preparing a body for his servant. And even as that was true of David, whom God knit together in the womb, Psalm 139, it's ultimately true of his son, who in the incarnation was knit together in Mary's womb. God prepared for him a body. And the reason why God prepared for him a body is because sacrifice and offering God did not desire. Do you see what the author of Hebrews is doing as he quotes from Psalm 40 for us? He's saying the reason why God prepared for his anointed king a body is because sacrifice and offering he did not desire because the sacrificial system to which the psalmist refers in Psalm 40 was merely provisional. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. And so God prepared for his anointed king a body. And he says, behold, I have come to do your will as it is written of me in the scroll of the book, which I take as a reference to the entirety of the Old Testament, which testifies to the fact that a king from David's line for whom God will prepare a body will come as the final sacrifice. 
And so the doing of God's will that Psalm 40 verse 8 speaks of is that same will to which Christ refers in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but thine be done. The pouring out of God's cup of wrath upon him as a propitiatory sacrifice, that is, one who, who would absorb the wrath of God. That's the will that the Davidic king who comes into the world, or the Davidic king comes into the world to do as it is written of him in the law and the prophets and the Psalms. The sacrifice of bulls and goats was never enough, but these sacrifices pointed forward to the Savior to come. Each of those lambs who was sacrificed pointed forward to the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. This is how Hebrews 10 authoritatively interprets Psalm 40. David spoke beyond himself as a prophet of the coming king who would take away the sins of the world as our priest, who having delighted to do God's will as our perfect sacrifice, would then go on in verse 9 to proclaim the good news, literally the gospel of righteousness in the great assembly. The Davidic king who who would serve as our priest, sacrificing the body that God had prepared for him, to which the bodies of bulls and goats pointed, would also proclaim as our prophet the salvation accomplished. Verse 10, not concealing from the assembly God's faithfulness and loving kindness and truth. We see in Psalm 40 the threefold office of the coming Messiah whom David spoke of as a prophet, that he is our king to whom David pointed, that he is our priest who would take away sins by the sacrifice of his body, that he is our prophet who would proclaim that salvation and righteousness in the midst of the assembly. But I want you to think about this. If, if the author of Hebrews tells us that Christ d- does not just uh, fulfill this psalm or, or just uh, kind of cherry pick and, and quote a line from this psalm, but that Christ was from the beginning its speaker, now that means this whole psalm is true of him. And just listen to how verses one through three uh, were, were true of Jesus. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. I think it was Spurgeon said, Christ is, is the only one of whom that verse is ultimately true, for Christ is the only one who is perfectly patient. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. And he brought me up out of a horrible pit, and he set me upon a rock, establishing my feet. He has put a new song in my mouth of praise to God that many will see and fear and trust in him. How descriptive that is uh, of the the, the entire life of Christ and of his death and resurrection where God pulls him up out of a pit to tell of God's righteousness and sing his praise to his people. Verses 4 and 5, blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not respect the proud and those who lie. Many, O Lord, are your wondrous works which you have done and your thoughts toward us more than can be numbered. Surely Christ could have sung that during his time on earth, and surely he did. As this songbook, the Psalms, was his songbook during his time on earth. And then Hebrews, of course, tells us that that, um, Christ sang verses 6 through 8 
We see his prophetic office in verses 9 and 10, proclaiming the, the gospel of righteousness in the midst of the assembly. But then that leads us to verses 11 and 12. If Christ, by his spirit, was praying this psalm through his forerunner David, then how could verse 12 be true of him? My iniquities have overtaken me. They are more than the hairs of my head. How could that be true of Jesus? Well, again, according to his threefold office where he is our representative and head. Uh, Think about it. Even as David prayed this psalm, verse 8 says that he did so as one who delights to do God's will and his law is within his heart. And yet he goes on to say that his, his sins have overtaken him and they're more than the hairs on his head. And yet he's speaking it in the context of one who has just said he delights to do God's will and his laws within his heart. And so I think um, Willem van Gemmeren is right when he says, uh, though David the king here speaks of my sins, he is here personifying the sins of the nation as his own. As their theocratic leader, he takes upon himself the sins of the nation and pleads for God to show compassion on them. We see the same sort of thing in places like Ezra 9, where he confesses the sins of the people as his own. And so the psalmist is here speaking as their representative. And so too, when the New Testament in Colossians 3 speaks of the Psalms as the word of Christ, meaning uh, the word that proceeds from his mouth, or when Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 10 ascribe the words of the psalmist to Jesus, they can do so even of the penitential Psalms because Christ is our head and representative who as our king takes on himself the sins of his people. And as our priest bears them before God. Here's the, the, the old uh, Reformed writer spoke of this. Thornwell said, Christ confesses here the guilt of his brethren, and we pray this prayer as the prayer of Jesus, whose intercession and atonement cover all defects so that we are faultless and complete in him. Calvin, speaking of, of how Christ is the one who prays this psalm, said it is no objection that he speaks here of his sin, for it is by no means an uncommon thing to find our sins transferred to Christ. This is the doctrine of imputation, where our great high priest and sacrificial lamb takes our sins on himself. Augustine said Christ is the speaker of this psalm, speaking as our head by taking of us that flesh in which he would die for us. He said he puts this hymn in our mouth and he speaks it on behalf of his members. Well, the reason why we can pray the penitential psalms, the, the psalms of confession in confidence is because Christ prays them with us. Because he so identifies with us in our sin that he becomes sin for us on the cross. He who knew no sin. 2 Corinthians 5, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because of Christ's blood, do not impute to us, poor sinners that we are, any of the transgressions we do or the evil that constantly clings to us. How is it that God can answer that prayer? Because he imputed those sins to another. He took our debts. 
He took our evil. He took our sin. He took our transgressions and iniquities and he placed them on his son who was given a body to do God's will in taking away the need for sacrifice forever by becoming the one of whom verse 12 is true legally as he bears our sins on the cross. Do you see your great high priest in Psalm 40? Do you hear him interceding for you in verse 12? And do you believe as you sing each Lord's Day a song of confession that he is singing that song with you as the one who wrote it? As the one who sang it with his people during his life on earth? As the one who came to identify with sinners? Even as we see in his baptism. He gets in line with sinners. Liars. Murderers pedophiles, thieves, and says, I will receive a baptism of repentance. I will get in line with sinners. And as the water is is poured over their heads to wash away all of their filth into the Jordan River, I will then let that water be poured upon my head, taking their sin, for that is what I've come to do. Behold, I come as it is written of me in the scriptures to do your will. Matthew 3.15, to fulfill all righteousness. Beloved, you see the, the basis upon which God is able to answer your prayer in the fifth petition. Because of the blood of Jesus who sanctifies us through the offering of his body once for all, Hebrews 10.10, who becomes the sacrificial lamb on whom our sins are placed, our priest and king who, who pleads with God in our stead and so identifies with us that our sins become his. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The reason God can forgive our sins in answer to the fifth petition is because Christ became sin for us. Our sin imputed to us, his righteousness imputed to us. Which he then proclaims to us in the gospel, verses 9 and 10, even as he's doing in this very moment, the preaching of the word. He is proclaiming, verse 9, the gospel, the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. That's that's what verse 9 says this one will do. This Davidic king and priest who will take away the sins of his people by the offering of his body, he will proclaim the good news of imputed righteousness for all who are joined to him by faith, all whom he represents before the Father. As we see in places like Romans 10 or Ephesians chapter 2 where Christ so uh, identifies with the proclamation of his own word. He is doing that even in this very moment. In the preaching of his word, Christ is proclaiming to us the gospel of imputed righteousness that he has won for us in becoming that sacrifice of Psalm 40 and Hebrews 10. That is the basis upon which God is able to forgive our sins. And so having considered then the prayer that God would forgive our sins in verses 11 and 12 and the basis of that prayer for God's forgiveness, the blood of Jesus, in verses 5 to 10, let's consider in the rest of our time our response to God's provision of righteousness through his son. Just um, two things in our response. First, the fifth petition, as it calls us, 
uh, to pray to God through Christ to forgive our debts, it also calls us to examine ourselves to see uh, whether we have evidence of this grace in us. And, And that evidence is seen in our determination wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbor. Catechism is drawing this from Matthew chapter 6, where Christ says that we pray this petition, forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And then he adds in Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15, if you don't forgive others their debts, then neither will your heavenly Father forgive yours. I think it was Spurgeon who said that um, as we pray the Lord's Prayer, if we do not do so, with a forgiving heart towards others, then we read our own death warrants. Jesus says, if you don't forgive others their debts, neither will your heavenly Father forgive yours. And this is not saying that um, God's forgiveness of us is, is conditioned on us doing the work of forgiving others. But it's saying the heart that has truly experienced this forgiveness for which Psalm 40 prays will desire to treat others likewise will have a forgiving disposition toward others, even as God does toward us. And when we read in Lord's Day 51 that this is evidence of God's grace in us, a part of what that means is that if we look at ourselves and, and we see that we do not forgive, but we harbor a deep, deep bitterness that we have hatred toward our brothers and sisters in Christ, not treating them as God has treated us, then maybe we don't actually know the forgiveness for which Psalm 40 prays. Uh, There's an element in this petition that that calls us to self-examination to see whether our behavior is evidence that we have, in fact, been forgiven. Do you know the forgiveness for which Psalm 40 prays? Christ says, examine yourself. Examine your heart to see whether you do truly know this forgiveness as seen in your desire to forgive those who sin against you. So that's the first response, the first thing that we do in response to the good news of this psalm. Then second, our response as we pray for forgiveness and receive it on the basis of Christ's atoning work as we examine our hearts and see that God's forgiveness of us has indeed caused us to be forgiving toward others, the other part of our response then should be uh, the same response that we see in this psalm, a response of praise. We see that in verses 1 to 5, where the Lord, hearing the cry of his people, should cause us to have a new song in our mouth, a song of praise to our God, where we say, many are your wondrous works, O Lord, which includes not only our our, um, creation, as he speaks of the body that you've prepared for me, but also our redemption of God taking away our sins with the sacrifice of his son. We see this response of praise in verses 16 and 17 at the end of the psalm where the response of the people who have this imputed righteousness proclaimed to them in the gospel is that they would rejoice and be glad in God. That they would say continually, the Lord be magnified. We see here that forgiveness leads to doxology. Forgiveness leads to to doxology. That's why sometimes after a, a prayer of confession, assurance of pardon, we'll, we'll simply have a song of thanksgiving that, that simply celebrates the gospel. 
It simply rejoices in what it is that God has done in forgiving our sins because the gospel that is proclaimed to us in the assurance of pardon is worth celebrating. Again, that's why we respond to the Lord's Supper with a a song of, of celebration, a jubilant song of praise, because the gospel that is proclaimed to us in the preaching of the word, the assurance of pardon, and the bread and the cup is a gospel worth celebrating. That even though we are poor and needy, verse 17, God thinks upon us. He is our help and our deliverer. And so the psalm says we we sing a new song. Which, by the way, does not mean that that we um, uh, must sing something other than the psalms. But the new song in Psalm 40 is what follows in the rest of the psalm. As as his uh, patient waiting and humble cries turn to praise. That's the new song of which he speaks. Our response to God's provision of forgiveness through his son is that we would join in these words to hallow and magnify God's name. Which is what we said when we considered the the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be thy name. Every other petition in the Lord's prayer proceeds from that first petition, meaning the reason why we pray to God to to provide for our daily bread and forgive us our debts, the reason why we pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done is that his name might be hallowed. And so we magnify the name of the Lord by acknowledging our sin by seeking forgiveness through the blood of Christ, by then praising him for it and living in light of it by having a forgiving and forbearing gospel-shaped disposition toward others. That's what Psalm 40 calls us to. As we behold the one who has come into the world to do God's will by being sacrificed for sin, that we might say, forgive us our debts and have them forgiven for Christ's sake. May God's name be praised. May God's name be magnified. Let us pray.